It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Catch us weekdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm Kimberly Robinson alongside Greg Storr. June Grasso is out this week. Ahead in this hour, we'll talk about the growing threats against the judiciary and the inadequacies in the tracking system meant to keep federal judges safe. But first, the Supreme Court heard its last argument of the year this week in a case about workplace bias protections. I want to give you a chance to just uh, flesh out your position, which I understand has been um, subject to some questioning this morning, that, that in adopting the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Congress sought to root out discrimination, root and branch, and that all of it is impermissible and presumptively injurious. That was Justice Neil Gorsuch summing up the employee's argument about the sweeping nature of federal anti-discrimination laws. Joining us now to explain is Robert Ayafola, who covers labor law at Bloomberg Law. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Bobby, tell us about the former St. Louis police sergeant at the heart of this case. What is she claiming happened to her? Well, yeah, so uh, Jaitanya Muldrow uh, was a, a veteran sergeant in the St. Louis uh, Police Department, and she was assigned to uh, the intelligence unit, which allowed her to, to work on investigations and wear plain clothes and drive an unmarked car. Uh, and then she was transferred. This is not something she wanted. She was transferred to sort of a, a normal beat cop position. So she had to go back to driving a squad car, wearing a uniform, um, dealing with the uh, the changing shifts of uh, of a beat cop, and uh, that was not something that she wanted, or yeah, and it led to this suit. Okay, so this case is about the employment protections in something called Title VII. So tell our listeners, what are those protections generally meant to do? Yeah, generally, uh, they're meant to prevent discrimination in the workplace. Title VII spells out some certain protected traits, uh, sex, uh, religion, race, uh, so on and so forth, that workers are, are not to be uh, discriminated against on the basis of those protected traits as they affect the terms, conditions, and privileges of employment. So here, the uh, former police sergeant, she claimed that this transfer was based on her gender. So really at the heart of this case is whether these sort of adverse job transfers, as opposed to something like an outright firing, are sufficient to trigger Title VII's employment protections, even if there's not a showing of, of specific harm. Is that right? And if so, how did that play out in Muldrow's case? Well, yes. Yeah, so um, with her case, uh, the trial court and then the, uh, the appellate court that reviewed the trial court's decision 
both looked at the facts of the case and they said, uh, you know, while she didn't want this transfer to happen, um, she retained the same rank. Uh, it didn't affect her pay, uh, you know, her salary, um, you know, and, and that basically it didn't materially disadvantage her, um, even though it, it was her preference to work on uh, the intelligence unit instead of the, the beat. And because of that uh, lack of a material harm, that's why the, the court threw up uh, her claim. Like She never got to the point of proving whether the transfer was based on gender, which would be violative of Title VII, uh, it got thrown up because she couldn't show she suffered a material harm. So before we talk about what happened at the Supreme Court, the other lower federal courts, have they all agreed with the analysis of the Eighth Circuit in saying that you need to show that sort of material harm? So there's a split on that issue. Most of the courts, appellate courts, that have weighed in on this issue have agreed with um, the position that the Eighth Circuit took. So I think it's something on the order of five uh, appellate courts have said, yeah, there's some sort of, they kind of formulate it different ways, whether it's a, a material tangible harm or a, a significant disadvantage. It's just some way of saying, hey, what's the, uh, what's the material harm? Why did this hurt you? But there are two circuits that have gone the other way the D.C. Circuit and uh, I think it's the Sixth Circuit have said, no, that's not a requirement um, to, to making a claim of uh, discrimination under Title VII when it comes to transfers. And so during the oral arguments in the Supreme Court, what were some of the concerns from the justices regarding these different tests? And I guess let's start with the lack of uh, a harm requirement. What's the concern there? The concern there is chiefly around uh, what is a limiting principle. Um, you know, if the justices pose all sorts of different hypothetical questions, you know, what if uh, an employer transfers all the uh, women workers into rooms, offices that have um, you know, one color of paint and another, all the men in a different color of paint? Or what if uh, an employer, uh, you know, a supervisor uh, asks all the employees, how was your weekend, except for one employee, and, and they allegedly did that, did that on the basis of, um, of race or sex or other protected trait, you know. So this is connected with this sort of policy concern about federal courts being inundated with frivolous lawsuits that they can't just get rid of at an early stage, that they, they have to... Um, you know, go through stages of litigation before it could be thrown out. And was there an answer to those concerns? What did the lawyer for the police sergeant say when, for example, presented with the hypothetical about uh, workers of different genders being assigned to offices with different colors? Yes, so his position was that um, discrimination is the harm itself. And he kind of resisted the, the premise of the question that, that they were supposed to be absurd. For example, he talked about if you distribute pink pens to some employees and uh, blue pens to others at a random basis, that's, you know, that's clearly not a problem. But if you do it on the basis of race, that is a problem. But the, during arguments, uh, they did talk about other sort of natural limiting principles that might emerge. You know, the fact that an employee could prove that there was discrimination, but in order to win damages, they'd have to show that they suffered an injury that needed to be compensated. So if it's the pen hypothetical, sure, 
you might get a jury to say that that was discrimination, but you're not going to win any money. Hmm. If you're not going to win any money, you're not going to get a lawyer. You know, this sort of um, it comes out that way. So what about going the other way? Let's say that the Supreme Court says that there's some kind of heightened harm requirement. What concerns do critics of that side have? Yeah, I mean, um, an argument is that it, it basically would allow for segregation in the workplace based on gender or race or other other protected traits, um, you know, which they argue that um, Title VII clearly does not allow. Did you get a sense in the courtroom of which way the justices were leaning on this question? Yeah, it did seem like um, there was a, a small minority uh, of justices um, that were extremely concerned about this question about trivial uh, differences, creating frivolous lawsuits and, and the negative uh, consequences of that. But that was only uh, maybe two or three justices seemed to focus on that. The other justices seemed to really embrace the workers' argument that uh, the harm of discrimination is the discrimination itself. And so, you know, there's been a lot of talk over the years that the Roberts Court is friendly to businesses, that it's a business-friendly court. So this sort of suggests the opposite in this case. Yeah, well, um, you know, each case is going to be a, a separate issue. And with this issue in particular, for example, uh, when Brett Kavanaugh was um, a D.C. Circuit judge uh, before he ascended to the bench, he was uh, in a case that dealt with this issue. And at that time, there was binding precedent that had to be applied that required a, a material harm. But he said in a concurring opinion, the D.C. Circuit should change their case law and get rid of this requirement, um, and which is something the D.C. Circuit did a few years later. Hmm. Or also um, take Neil Gorsuch, for example. You know, in some respects, a, a rock rib conservative justice you know, appointed by uh, former President Trump. Um, but at the same time, he wrote um, the case that expanded Title VII's protection to cover um, gender identity and sexual orientation, uh, which would be, it was something the businesses did not want at the time, but he grounded that decision in the text of uh, Title VII. You know, today he asked a lot of questions that indicated that um, he was firmly grounded in the text of Title VII when he talked about um, you know, there not needing to be an additional requirement. Well, coming up on the program, we'll get more on the Title VII case in front of the justices with Robert Iafola. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere where you get your podcasts. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Store. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. 
You're listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Catch the program weekdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. We're in for June Grasso. But are you saying then if the employer wants to increase diversity in the workplace and so promotes, say, some black employees and they get better jobs, then that's discrimination? That was Justice Amy Coney Barrett wondering how a broad view of employment discrimination protections might play out in future cases. We've been speaking with Robert Iafola about employee bias protections being considered by the U.S. Supreme Court. Bobby, we're going to get to Justice Barrett's question in a second. Uh, But first, let me ask you, this case had kind of a a quirk to it in that the question that the St. Louis police sergeant asked the Supreme Court to consider is not the exact question they're actually considering. Can you explain what happened and how that might be affecting what the court does? Yes. Yeah, that's right, Greg. Um, So originally when Muldrow petitioned the court to review the Eighth Circuit decision and and, um, revive her uh, gender bias lawsuit, she asked a much broader legal question uh, about the need for a showing of material harm for any workplace decision that affects terms, conditions, and privileges of employment. You know, so you could imagine that could cover things like work assignments, you know, where you're assigned to work. Do you have to work outside in the heat? Can you work inside in the air conditioning? You know, what job functions you have to perform? All sorts of different things. But the court, when they accepted um, her request to, to take this case, they narrowed it down and to just job transfers, uh, just the uh, material harm requirement for job transfers, not for a whole myriad of uh, employment decisions that could potentially be illegally motivated by, um, by race or, or another um, sort of biased decision. Okay, but we've already on this program talked about things that go well beyond transfer, right? We talked about the color of pens. We talked about the color of offices. So this is something that confused me about the argument was there was discussion on this on this broader point, right? And whether there's some sort of de minimis discrimination that sort of is permissible by Title VII. Is, is that right? Yeah. So on the one hand, I think that some of the justices were using those um, examples kind of to deploy the weapon of absurdity uh, to point out, you know, why you need a limitation. So some of these situations are not real, like the assignment of colors of pens and whatnot. But also they had some concerns about these situations. But at one point, uh, Justice Jackson brought it back to the narrow question presented and and she said quite directly, hey, look, I thought we narrowed this question to just transfers so that we didn't have to worry about um, this sort of issue about what is trivial and all sorts of random um, and potentially discriminatory workplace actions. So the case before the Supreme Court is being pressed by a woman claiming discrimination. But there's also the specter that uh, whatever rule the court comes out with could be used by people pressing so-called reverse discrimination uh, cases, namely, say, a white person saying an employer's diversity policy uh, discriminates against them. We heard that question from Justice Barrett. 
asking about that subject. Was there any more from the court on that? Do we have any, any kind of indication as to whether corporate diversity policies might be affected by this case? Well, Justice uh, Thomas also asked uh, whether the workers' definition of uh, discrimination here uh, and, and the need for no material harm um, could run headlong into efforts to diversify the workplace. So it's clearly on uh, the, the court's mind. Um, it seems like with this narrowed question presented, the ruling will most likely deal just with transfers. But you could imagine that there'll be all sorts of commentary in the opinion that uh, down the road litigants might point to uh, whether they be folks worried about uh, discriminatory uh, employment actions that aren't transfers or, you know, whether they're raised by um, the sort of people that you're mentioning, um, folks who are against, quote unquote, reverse racism. And then surprisingly, bathrooms have been a topic at the U.S. Supreme Court over recent terms. And sort of wondering, that came up in the argument, too. Is that going to be one of the areas where, you know, this case could potentially have a broader impact, the idea of access to bathrooms for you know, transgender students or transgender workers? Yeah, I was um, sort of surprised when that came up in the arguments myself. When the parties were discussing, um, you know, possible exceptions to this idea that discrimination is, by definition, a harm uh, that people suffer, you know, that it attacks your dignity and stigma attached and these sort of things. But when discussing this, um, I believe it was um, the lawyer for the Solicitor General's office, the, the Biden administration lawyer, had brought up uh, bathrooms as one of the examples of an area that um, traditionally uh, we just viewed it's essentially sex discrimination, right, uh, to say that women um, go to the bathroom in that room and men go to the bathroom in that room. But that that's an example of an accepted um, discrimination on the basis of sex that nobody really questions. But, of course, it is coming up in cases about bathroom access for transgendered individuals. Again, I, I think it's similar to the issue with the diversity programs that, I do not believe that there'll be any like holding directly on point about the bathroom issue, but there may be stray discussion in a in the majority opinion or in a dissenting opinion that uh, litigants down the road might seize on, um, you know, litigants on either side of the debate. Bobby, stepping back just a little bit, so this court in many ways is a very conservative court. Um, I think a lot of people listening might be a little bit surprised that this court even though this may end up being a narrow decision, might be ruling in favor of employment discrimination suits. And it wouldn't be the first time they've done that. You mentioned the case involving uh, suits by transgender uh, people and suits alleging uh, sexual orientation discrimination. What's going on here? Can you sort of encapsulate why uh, the court is doing something that to many people might be counterintuitive? Yeah, uh, I mean, from my perspective, I think it comes down to uh, judicial philosophy. Uh, essentially, judges uh, that tend to hail from the right side of the political spectrum also claim allegiance to a way of interpreting law uh, known as textualism, where they're not interested in the legislative history that might have gone on uh, that led up to the writing of a the law. They're only interested in what 
the words on the paper say and what those words meant at the time that they were written. So in this case, you know, the, uh, the workers' attorney really leaned into this. It's really about what does Title VII say. Title VII does not explicitly create any separate harm requirement. It just says it's unlawful for an employer to discriminate against any individual concerning terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of their sex or race or other protected traits. So uh, in that respect, um, it kind of fits right in with some of the uh, justices on the court that are conservative justices, but they're textualists. Well, our thanks to Bloomberg Law's Robert Iafola. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, we'll take a look at threats against federal judges and what the government is doing to try to stop them. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Catch us weekdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Kimberly Robinson, in for June Grasso. Up now, the number of credible threats against federal judges climbed in recent years, with more than 180 substantiated threats against federal judges from January to March of 2023. Two weeks ago. My life as I knew it changed in an instant, and my family will never be the same. A madman who I believe was targeting me because of my position as a federal judge came to my house. That was federal judge Esther Salas in 2020 after a gunman opened fire at her home, killing her 20-year-old son and severely injuring her husband. Here to talk to us about threats against judges and the government's efforts to thwart them is a familiar voice. Bloomberg Law's Lydia Wheeler, who, when she's not filling in as a host on this show, covers the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary. So, Lydia, you recently wrote a story about judicial security and, and threats against judges. What did you uncover? That's right. So I actually learned in my reporting that the United States Marshals Service can't fully assess the security risks that federal judges face because its system for tracking threats uh, doesn't allow marshals to cross-reference behavioral information and spot suspicious activity that could actually help them connect cases. So former marshals told me that the system that they're using now was actually built to keep tabs on prisoners and fugitive investigations, not actually track threats and inappropriate communications against the judiciary. You know, um, one former marshal, you know, put it to me this way. He said, think about if there's a little red Corvette seen circling the federal courthouse in Omaha, Nebraska on Wednesday, and then a red Corvette is spotted circling a federal courthouse in Little Rock, Arkansas on Friday, intelligence analysts really need to be able to connect those dots pretty quickly, and that's something that they can't do right now. Hmm. Well, is the Marshal Service working on a fix for this problem? 
Yeah, they are. So the Marshal Service has been working on this for some time. They've been working to transition the entire agency over to a new system um, called Capture. Uh, that former marshals I talked to told me that it would let the Judicial Security Division actually break data down into more detail, you know, track threats by district, by drudge, by, you know, person who made the threat and how the threat was communicated. But funding issues and competing priorities uh, have really contributed to the project's delay. So what sorts of threats are judges getting? For this story, I actually looked at cases of people who have been federally prosecuted for threatening a judge just to get an idea of the type of threats that, you know, judges are getting. Um, And I can tell you, they're often very explicit, um, and some are actually pretty scary. So, you know, the threats are are most often communicated by email. Um, They come to the judge's chambers by phone and are left in a voicemail message. And um, oftentimes they come in handwritten letters. Um, So I actually came across one case from 2017 um, that was against a man in Connecticut who threatened to harm a federal bankruptcy judge in a handwritten letter that he put in the, in her mailbox at her home. So he actually knew where she lived. And, you know, it was basically telling her, like, don't don't go too far in this hearing, you know, back off, I'm warning you. Um, and, you know, oftentimes the threat goes beyond not only the judge, but also targets the people who are closest to them. So it will say that they, you know, the threatener often t- uh, threatens a spouse or the judge's children as well. Hmm. So in, in looking at the people who have been prosecuted for threatening a federal judge, are there any similarities among those people? There definitely are. So we uh, teamed up with Peter Simi, who is a sociologist at Chapman University. He's actually been studying threats against public officials at the National Counterterrorism Innovation Technology and Education Center at the University of Nebraska Omaha. Um, and so with his data, we were able to look at cases from the last 10 years and, you know, looking at this, you know, wealth of information, we found that most often, you know, threateners have some sort of a connection to the judge that they're threatening, or at least a connection to the case that that judge is hearing. So meaning they've either had a case before the judge in the past, or they know someone who has. Um, sometimes, though, the person is just really upset about the case that the judge is presiding over. So um, think back, you know, we've reported in recent months um, that Judge Tanya Chutkin has gotten death threats. You know, she's the judge that's overseeing that criminal case right now in D.C. Um, that's accusing President Donald Trump of conspiring to overturn the 2020 election results. We also found uh, that people um, who threaten judges often have a criminal history already. Um, Lots of them have mental health issues, and um, several of them are motivated by ideology. So, you know, Peter Simi at Chapman University, you know, found that in his research that actually right-wing extremism ideologies tend to be the most um, prominently presented here. And so, you know, but threats are also coming in you know, from people on the other side of the political line, too. If you'll think back, um, Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, who's a federal district judge in Texas, you know, he got a barrage of death threats and harassing phone calls in March um, when he was hearing a big case over a key abortion drug known as mifepristone. And I'm sure you both remember uh, the man who was found, you know, outside of Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home. You know, he was armed with a pistol, uh, and he told investigators that he was there uh, to kill the justice because um, he was upset about the court's leak of the draft abortion decision. 
Lydia, in your story, you distinguish uh, among different types of, of people who make threats. Uh, you said that there are hunters and there are howlers. Can you describe what those are? That's right. So the marshals refer to people who threaten judges repeatedly as howlers. You know, those and and then they those are people who repeatedly send messaging or threatening messages, but they don't ever act on them. And then there are people who actually go out and seek out the judge and attack them. And those are known as hunters. And I'm told that they're rarely one in the same. So meaning howlers don't often turn into hunters. Uh, but marshals, you know, former marshals told me that it's impossible to know kind of which threats are credible and if a hunter or if a howler is going to become a hunter eventually unless they actually investigate and look into the threat itself. You know, I will say that the judges and the former marshals that I spoke with um, all praised the work of the marshal service um, and spoke about how judicial security is a, just a really difficult job, even with the best analytical tools. You know, several of the judges I spoke with just, um, you know, wanted to make that clear, you know, that they have a really hard job, you know, even if they have the best tools. Hmm. So you said you spoke with some federal judges. How do they feel about these threats and sort of what's going on with the marshal's office? Yeah, that's right. So I, I spoke with Judge Timothy Corrigan. You know, he now serves as chief judge of the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Florida. Um, you know, he said that threats are just part of the job and that he has to deal with them, um, but that it's actually really hard on his family. Um, and, and that's the hardest part to think about, that because of what he chose to do for a living, he's now putting, you know, the, those that he loves the most at risk. And um, Judge Corrigan is interesting because actually in 2013, he was nearly assassinated at his home when a gunman um, took aim outside his window. Um, you know, he was just relaxing in his recliner watching TV. And, you know, all of a sudden there was this big explosion. Um, and, you know, in the investigation afterwards, they, they found out that the bullet had missed his head by 1.6 inches. Um, you know, in that attack, uh, the attacker was actually able to sneak away from the scene, um, and he ended up on the list of possible suspects uh, because he had a warrant out for his arrest. Um, he had violated, I guess, the terms of his supervised release and was actually due back before Judge Corrigan. Um, but Judge Corrigan told me that he didn't even remember him very well, and, like, the only reason he made that list of potential suspects was because, you know, he had he had that warrant out for his arrest. But um, so, you know, Judge Corrigan has gotten threats since then um, from other people. And, you know, like I said, he said they're just a feature of the job. And he said that they don't try to affect him that much on the bench or, you know, that they, they aren't really having an impact. But, you know, the sociologist I spoke with said, you know, judges are human and these threats could impact, you know, how they, they you know, form their decisions and how they rule on the bench. Lydia, uh, you said they are increasing now. Um, is there a, a broader effect on the federal judiciary? Yes, yeah, so my sources are telling me that, uh, you know, a threat against a member of the judiciary is really a threat against democracy and that it's not tenable for democracy to have people expressing their grievances and lacing that discontent with threats of violence, you know, at this volume. So, um, you know, the sociologist I spoke with said it suggests that a certain lawlessness is acceptable and actually becoming normalized. So, yeah, this is, you know, uh, the, the broader impacts are, are pretty great here. So, Lydia, we heard previously from Judge Esther Salas, who was involved in an attack in 2020 by a gunman that killed her son and injured her husband. Can you tell us what happened with that case? There was some legislation that came as a result of that, right? 
Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, Judge Salas actually lobbied Congress um, after that horrible tragedy uh, to pass the Daniel Anderl Judicial Security and Privacy Act um, in 2022. And that law aims to make judges' personal identifiable information harder to find online. Um, and so, actually, I reached out to the Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts, and they told me that um, since that law passed, about 3 million um, individual pieces of judges' information um, have been removed from the Internet since then. Um, so we know that the, the law is having an impact. And um, Judge Salas told me that she also got a similar legislation passed at the state level in New Jersey, um, and she's working for other states um, to pass a similar legislation as well. Um, she's really made it her life's mission now um, without her only son, um, still living, you know, to um, ha- have some sort of impact on judicial security and make judges safe so no one else has to go through this horrible tragedy. Lydia, is there reason to think that the removal of all that information has indeed made judges and their families safer? Um, it has in some, some respects, um, but, you know, judges and former marshals that I spoke to said that there's no way to remove all of the information from the internet. Um, you know, it's hard to keep track of all of it and it's hard to find it all. Um, and there's always going to be information on the dark web. And so that's going to continuously be a risk, but this is a, a step in, in the right direction. You know, I actually, um, chatted with a former marshal who trains judges on, on security. And, you know, he said that they needed to to be proactive and um, be a participant in their own survival. So he basically advises them to get a home security system, you know, be really mindful of their social media posts. Um, He said that they should protect their private information the best way that they can. You know, it starts with them and um, that they, when they are out of the office and, you know, outside of the federal courthouse, uh, that they should pay attention to their surroundings. And if they see something suspicious, to report it. You know, Judge Salas told me that she, you know, prior to this attack, she had actually seen the attacker um, on her street and uh, had, had seen him ahead of time. And former marshals say that they hear this kind of thing, you know, all the time from some judges that, you know, they'll get that kind of intuition of like, oh, that doesn't feel right. And they don't report it. Um, and, you know, or they don't know that they should report it. And so this former marshal was saying, Definitely, if something rubs you the wrong way, like, you know, it's better to err on the side of caution. Um, So really to to trust your intuition and and to take all the threats that you're getting seriously. So Lydia, wondering, is there any other advice um, that's given to judges on how they can protect themselves and keep themselves safe while on the bench? Yeah, so, you know, marshals are basically just saying that, you know, pay attention to the threats that are coming through. Um, you know, it's easy to, to disregard some that you think are just like completely, you know, outlandish. I mean, some of the threats that I read, yeah, you know, you can tell that the person um, that is writing them is suffering some, from some mental health crisis, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that person will act on that threat. So it's important to make sure that you're reporting them. Um, and then to also that, you know, marshals told me that it's important, or former marshals, I should say, told me that it's important that judges kind of follow up and say, like, you know, hey, where are we with that? And kind of, you know, like I said, be an active participant in their own security. Lydia, we haven't talked about state court judges. Are they getting similar types of threats? Definitely. Uh, They're 100 percent 
facing the same kind of threats that federal judges are facing. And some of them uh, have had really horrible tragedies like some federal judges have. Um, Just recently in October, uh, there was a Maryland state court judge who was shot to death in the driveway of his home. You know, the prime suspect was actually a man that had lost a a custody of his children in a divorce hearing um, earlier that day in front of the judge that he shot. And, you know, police actually found that man about a week later um, deceased. So while marshals are tracking threats against federal judges, there I've been told there is no national repository for threats against state court judges. And there's way more of them. I mean, we're talking about like over 30,000 state court judges um, across the country. And, um, you know, states either aren't collecting this data or they're all they're not collecting it consistently across states um, or they're not reporting it publicly. So it's really hard to tell kind of what uh, state court judges are facing. And they don't have the protection of the marshal service. So actually, those people are less protected. Hmm. Sounds like a lot of work to do. But thank you to Lydia Wheeler. That's going to do it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.